I think when Carol and I uh, got married, I had a feeling uh, that we'd have conflict over certain issues and figured that they'd be of a, of a nature such as, you know, dealing with money or perhaps dealing with kids or discipline or the like. And I, I figured that those would cause us a degree of conflict that we would have to work through. What I, what I didn't anticipate, though, was uh, the smaller things causing a degree of conflict. Uh, do you put the cap back on the toothpaste or not? Do you squeeze from the middle or do you squeeze from the bottom? These are our personal issues that we're going to be, this is kind of like group therapy right here. But I, I didn't realize that the smaller issues of life actually can provide uh, a greater opportunity for conflict, which would lead to division, separation, kind of anger. Uh, these differences kind of pop up and, uh, and can work between a husband and wife. Not just a husband and wife, of course, but friendship and within the church community. H- how do you handle differences? When you have a relationship and you have differences come up in that relationship, uh, what happens? I mean, do you tend to find yourself drifting apart? Do you tend to find yourself defending or perhaps attacking? How do you handle it within the church? You know, it, it, it's no shock to you that most churches tend to be homogeneous. They tend to be white or not. They tend to be uh, young and, and different type of music. They tend to be higher liturgy. In other words, these secondary, I would say important issues, but many of the secondary issues, we kind of go along and we like to be with people that are like us, that think like us, that have our background, that have our direction. Well, the irony that when you come to Scripture, that God actually has created a church to display his glory through the differences that we have. So so God has intended that his people, different though they may be, work together in a unity through the power of the gospel so that the world would then see the reality of his glory. That's the intent. That's the goal of this church. We're going to take three weeks and look at loving God's people, loving God's glory, and loving God's world. That's why we exist. We exist to learn how to love one another. Now, our goal isn't numerical or some statistical growth. It's growing in this idea of being in one accord with one another, though we be different, so that God might be honored, that the gospel might be proclaimed as powerful. That's the intention. That's what Romans 15 is about, actually. See, the world, what the world does with differences is it will separate or it will try to eliminate the differences. But the church is called to embrace the differences that we have within this place when we gather together. And this is, in Romans 15, Paul is really teaching a church, how do you live together? How do you walk out the faith when we walk it out differently from one another? And how can we do that in unity with one accord? That's really the point of this passage. Because if we don't do it, if we don't learn to live together differently, walking out the faith, then what we end up doing is sliding into schisms and sects and groups. And what happens is, yeah, we all come to the same building, but we're really not all the same people because our hub isn't around that critical issue of the gospel. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. We'll read the first seven verses. And incidentally, we're going to look at um, next week will be um, 15 verses 8 to, I'm not sure, I think maybe 21 and then, or uh, 
13 or 15, and then, and then the rest of the chapter on the third week. So we'll be looking at the vision of the church just through Romans 15. So uh, I'll begin in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, let me just kind of set the table here before I go into this kind of picture of biblical community. Uh, You see Paul kind of divide the church into two groups, right? Strong and weak. And I want to explain these terms. But before I explain the terms, I want to explain that, that they're both loved of God. That they're both in the community of the redeemed that the strong aren't loved more and the weak loved less. They're all part of the family of God. But he does differentiate the strong and the weak. And I want to explain what these are, because the strong is referenced in chapter 14, and it's speaking about the people that are able to eat meat that have been sacrificed to idols. Now, this was really a problem for the Jewish community, because for you to offer meat to an idol that is joining in an idolatrous worship. And so to eat the meat that was sacrificed would be to participate in the worship of idols. But Paul's saying that those who are strong, those who are grounded in the gospel, recognizing that there are no other gods besides the one true God, they can eat the meat. The strong here are those who have an understanding of the gospel, that they're free. They're free to not worry and fret and fear over every little thing in life. Uh, they, they can live in the gray areas of life. The strong in this passage understand that the love of God and the grace of God is given to them, not based upon their performance from the week prior, but based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. The strong in this passage are free to be broad-minded without fearing slipping into sin here and sin here. They really understand, in a word, the strong understand justification by faith, in faith alone, in Christ alone. They understand it. And so, like Augustine, love God and do what you want. Because if you love him and you know he loves you, you will walk in a manner worthy of his name. Now, the weak are different. The weak are less mature in the faith. And again, in chapter 14, the weak were the ones struggling over these legalistic wranglings. Should I eat the meat? Should I not eat the meat? Should I worship on this day? Should I not worship on this day? What should I wear? The weak are troubled by the particulars of the law. The weak do not like the gray. They want it black and white. Tell me how I need to live. They don't like moral ambiguity. They want to know the rules. What makes me part of the group? What makes me not part of the group? And I'll do what makes me part of the group. The weak in faith don't have a deep understanding of what it means to be saved by grace alone. 
They're still looking at their performance. They are subject to guilt and condemnation and fear because they don't understand that God didn't save them based upon what they've done. And so while it's important how we live, our, 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 our favor with God doesn't go up and down based upon how you've behaved. The weak in faith haven't come to a place, as Paul taught in Romans fourteen seventeen, that the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. And so what Paul's doing here in this letter, I'm just still setting the table for you. What Paul's doing in this letter is he's saying, hey, in every church you have strong and weak, and there's going to be differences between them. And there's going to be conflict, and you tend to separate. And he's saying, I want you to know how to live with the differences. And so how do we live with it? This is very important for us, because we're different in here. Some of you, in terms of your parenting, you are more of a hovercraft. There's others who are much looser and freer about how you parent. The use of media. Some of you have very strict rules and regulations about what kind of media, your social media, your children use. Others are a little more open about it, and they work through it with their kids. The the way music. Some of us like traditional hymns. Others like uh, more contemporary, faster, louder. These are differences that have value, but, but they don't separate us or dress. Some of you can't believe I'm preaching without a tie on right now. I, I know that. You, you, for some folks, having a tie is a staple of being behind the pulpit. For others of you, the tie is just part of a bygone era. I, I do want to remind, I do want to at least tell you, did a little research on this. The tie was really invented around 1600. We think it came from Croatia. It was a fashion, but it didn't get into any mainstream use. Sounds like I'm defending myself, doesn't it? I probably am. Uh, But these things cause, these differences can cause division and conflict and, and separation leading to judgmentalism. What happens is the weak among us will look at the strong and, and be critical of their freedoms. Be critical of the, uh, of the broad-minded approach to life that they have. They don't enjoy that sort of freedom. Let me just pray for these folks. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given for men and women to serve us in this capacity. And we ask you to guide them and lead them and, and let them be effective in the help that they bring and the people that they serve. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to see your grace in these men and women serving them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so the, the, the weak look at the, at the strong, and they can be critical of them, and even live in fear of them. Now, the strong can be critical of the weak and say, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to mature? When are you going to get the freedom that is ours in the gospel? But what happens is, ultimately, is it leads to division. It leads to conflict. And that's what Paul's talking about. So, so here's what I, I just want to hit three simple points today. First is that biblical community embraces differences. Biblical community, there are some strong here, there are some weak. Biblical community embraces differences. Look with me at the first verse. He says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul himself, he is saying, I'm one of the strong. Again, God loves them both. So this isn't some ego trip for Paul. We who are strong. So Paul is saying there is this group 
of people who understand the gospel and they're free to live in the power of the gospel, in the liberty that the gospel brings, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now listen, there is an obligation here. The strong have an obligation. They have a responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak. And when I talk about bearing with the failings of the weak, I'm not talking about that toe-tapping impatience that you have with people that don't think like you. I'm not talking about the criticisms and sarcastic comments that you make about so-and-so that maybe doesn't think along the same lines as you. I'm not talking about the neglect. You know what? When we see people different than us, we kind of draw back a little bit, and we really neglect them. That's not meeting this obligation that we have to bear with the failings of the weak. You know, to bear, you kind of get that, to bear, I want you to think of lifting up. If you're lifting up somebody, you're bearing them, you're acting to support them. So the strong among us, and that's what he's speaking to, you notice that in the whole passage, he doesn't instruct the weak. He only instructs those who are strong. And he says, you strong, you need to bear up the failings of those who are weak. The failings are what I said before, kind of the legalism. Some people are really caught up in legalistic understandings of Scripture. Some people who are weak in their theology and their understanding of how the faith plays out, they adhere to and they espouse some some very undeveloped thoughts about God. And, and it moves into their life and the way they live. And they do some funky things in the name of God. And we're to bear with those failings. Failings also include just some repeat sins, some besetting struggles that people have. These failings of the weak can be just quirky personalities. You know, it's an amazing thing about the grace of God. If you've lived just a trashed life, and then you come to a saving knowledge of Christ, That doesn't mean that that history of life and all the patterns and sinful behaviors you've had, they just don't get eliminated. So the working out of salvation in their life, there's going to be a lot of quirkiness coming out of that. And and there's going to be a lot of failings come out of that. And and, and Paul said, no, you who are strong, you've got to bear with that. You've got to lift them up. You have to bear up under them, support them. And how do we do this? Well, A, by engaging them, by drawing near to them by not standing in judgment or not questioning their motivations or not trying to assess the value of what they bring to the table, but, but you're really engaging them, trying to understand who they are. Why are they doing what they're doing? What's their history? It's amazing when I'm with people. I'll have one impression, and then after spending or having a meal with them, and you hear their history and you hear their background, you're like, whoa, wow, they're doing great. They're doing unbelievable. I mean, they've come from a train wreck. And this is what God's done in their life. And your perspective changes. And you're not so quick. You, we want to engage people. I'm not saying adopt what they believe. I'm not saying embrace it as it's true or that you want to follow it, but that you're called to engage them, to build them up. That word to build up is an architectural word. It means to frame up a house, to make it usable. That you, the strong, are called to do that to the weak. That when you see these believers, they may be new in the faith, they may be old and immature in the faith, but we're called to bear them up, to support them, to encourage them. So let me just ask you, in terms of our biblical community embracing the differences, how do you think you play out in that? Would you value or would you assess yourself as strong or as weak? How would you consider yourself? When you look at the nature of the relationships that you have, are you strong or are you weak? Hey, here's a test for you to discern it. Do you find it easy to criticize the failings of others? Do you even have a sense of joy in being better than them? Or do you find it easy to criticize the freedoms that people use? 
Do you look down upon people who don't treat Scripture or don't treat parenting or don't treat whatever different than you? I mean, I mean, how do you look at it? Do you find criticism easy? If you are weak, don't be envious of the strong and don't be threatened by them. Be grateful. Be grateful because God has given to the church those who are strong to bear up and support those who are weak. And if you're strong, then sense the obligation and sense the responsibility that you have, that you have to open up your lives for people that are different than you and that may be uncomfortable to you initially. The, the strong are not just to be opening up their lives and, uh, and sensing the obligation, but I would also say to seek a biblical tolerance. To seek a biblical to- Now, when I say tolerance, I know many of your minds run right to, ooh, tolerance, you know, it's a bad word. It's not a bad word. Uh, tolerance, uh, I would say, from the world's perspective, it's kind of the last remaining moral absolute, is to be tolerant. But the worldly tolerance is different than a biblical tolerance. A, a worldly tolerance seeks to make no negative evaluations. It, seems to, it uh, attempts to make everything the same. So what you believe and you believe and you believe, it doesn't matter. If it's right to you, it's right to you, it's right to you, that's fine. And, 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 and a worldly tolerance isn't really tolerant of differences. I want you to know that. What it does is it seeks to flatline and eliminate the differences by saying everything's the same. So worldly tolerance is not actually tolerant of differences. And in this way, it causes, it, 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 it's, it's like, well, it'd be like the first century of Christianity. So when Christianity started growing in the Mediterranean basin, uh, in many parts of the Roman Empire, it was accepted. You can believe in Jesus. You weren't persecuted because you believed in Jesus. We'll put Jesus up with this pantheon, this, this just hundreds of gods that we worship. Jesus will be one among many, and that's fine. Come, you can worship Jesus, you can worship the other gods, we'll worship Jesus, and we'll worship the other gods. And of course, the Christians say, no, we can't do that because he's the one true God. That's all we can worship. And what happened was this tolerant community became, ironically, intolerant of people that they perceived as intolerant. And this is a worldly tolerance. It wants to flatline everything. And there's many ways to cause division. You know, when differences come up, you can just, you can just act by expulsion and just move them out. And that, that way you can keep everybody similar. Or you can even move with um, subjugation. If you have enough power, you can bring people to a commonality. You can eliminate differences by the end of the sword. That's what you see in radical Islam. You're forced into certain behaviors. You actually see it in certain churches when everybody has to dress the same and everybody has to read the same way and act the same and and school the same and you see that across the board. That's a very frightening sign to me because that's becoming a way to develop commonality without the gospel. But there's another way. There's another way to be intolerant and that is by assimilation. In other words, if you want to be my friend, you have to be the way I am. If you want to be part of this church, you have to be the way we are. And, and, and you are flatlining differences by forcing them. If they want to be part of your life, a part of this church's life, then you have to be like me. And there's no embracing of differences there. A biblical tolerance is much stouter because what Paul is saying here is we want to have a community that is united while different. In other words, the differences of the weak, many times they're wrong I'm going to still engage you even though I think you're wrong. 
I'm not going to engage you condescendingly. I'm not going to engage you in a way that I'm going to prove you wrong. But I'm actually going to love you. I'm going to open up my life to you. I'm going to involve you in my life, even though I think you're wrong. See, a biblical tolerance doesn't deny the wrongness of certain views. A biblical tolerance recognizes, no, I think these views are wrong, but, but I love you. You're growing in the faith. I want you in my life. I want to be in your life. It's a different type of tolerance where we don't have to deny the differences of views and some views being wrong. But, but it doesn't deny me being with you and loving you. The whole idea of welcoming, when he says in verse 7, welcome one another, that, that Greek word means to pull people next to you. Pull them next to you and, and allow them to live with you and, and, and be close to you, be an intimate friend with you. So, so being strong is making room in your life for these people in this community. Being strong is allowing the grace of God to have its own timing to bring people to a better place. How would you say you do in that? Are your relationships, do you, in your relationships with people, do you have any close relationships with people that are different than you? Significantly different. Different. Uh, or, or when you look at your relationships, do they tend to look like you? If, if, you, if you're a homeschooler, are they only homeschoolers? If, if you're a Democrat, are they only Democrats? If you're fiscally conservative, are they only those who are fiscally conservative? If you're a Republican, are they only Republicans? I mean, do you have a breadth of relationships that involve people that are different than you? This is what I love about our African brothers and sisters. I can't imagine what they give up to worship here. I can't. I mean, our songs are probably too short. They're probably too quiet. We don't, we don't, we don't dance. Our worship is tight and white oftentimes, to be perfectly honest with you. And do you know what they give up? You know, they have embraced us and opened their lives widely to us. Just saying, you know what, this is the way we understand it. This is the way we think it's done, but we love our, our brothers and sisters here. Why? Because they know the gospel. And so the gospel is the hub by which we find our commonality. I've learned a lot from them and from that situation. So Paul's saying here, the biblical, if, if a community is rooted in scriptures, if it's a biblical community, we're going to embrace differences. And we're going to embrace them so far as to involve people in our lives that are different than us. So I leave you with the question, when you look at your relationships, do you have those relationships present? And if you don't, will you initiate? Will you intentionally move towards others that you don't know and may be different? That's the first thing. Now, this is a tall order. I get it. This is, a, this is a great challenge. I understand that. But Paul gives us a reason why we ought to do this. And not just a reason, but he gives us a motivation. And I want you to look in verse 3 with me, because the first word he says this after giving the command, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. He says, for Christ did not please himself. Now that word for, F-O-R, it's a little Greek word, but it's always used most of the time, it's used in a way of explaining a reason. Paul is showing us, here's how you can do what I just said. So oftentimes when you see the word for, you want to look behind it. And what you're going to find usually is a command. And it's a command that's being given based upon what he's going to say. So he's giving us instruction on how we can do this. How we can draw. It feels awkward to draw with people who are different than us. 
So we need power, we need grace. Well, Paul tells us how. He says, for Christ did not please himself. What he does is he he directs our gaze back to Christ, and he says, look at him for just a minute. Meditate on him for just a minute with me, because he's going to help you. And not just by example, Jesus isn't just a coach for us, but, but, but for a motive. Look at what Christ has done. Now, he quotes Psalm 69, he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you So this is the Messiah, let's say, speaking. The reproaches of those, that's us, who reproached you, that's God, they fell upon me. So Jesus is saying that all the reproaches that we had, the sins, the arrogance, the rejection, the disdain, all of that that we had against God fell upon the one who came in the name of God. Jesus bore our failings. Jesus bore our reproach. Jesus bore those things. Jesus is the strong one who is bearing the failings of us, the weak. So Paul's saying, I want you to embrace differences in this biblical community, and I want you to embrace the differences by looking at Jesus who embraced your weaknesses, your failings, your reproach, your sin. This is, again, the substitutionary nature of the gospel. This is the gospel here where all of our reproaches, all of our failings, all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, all of our quirkiness, it was born by the Son of God. It was born by Jesus. I think it's speaking about Jesus in Psalm 69. It's a psalm that has 37 verses. Seven of them are quoted in the New Testament referencing Jesus. So we, we call it a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that speaks to the Messiah coming. And he's come to just do that. He gave himself. He didn't please himself. Now, when I say that, I don't want you to think he didn't have joy. Joy set before him, he endured the cross. What he's saying is, Jesus didn't think of his first, what pleases him specifically. It's not my will, but your will be done. He didn't please himself, but he brought great joy to the Father in bearing our reproach. But notice what Paul does. So the first thing, so you're wondering, how am I going to do this? Well, you're going to do this by meditating on Christ. But then look at what Paul does in verse 4. Because in verse 4, he says, for again, another reason here he gives us, whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is what we call a parenthetical statement. This is kind of a statement that, that supports, but it's not the main point. This parenthetical statement, he's saying, you can just see Paul's mind as he's writing. He, he, he is bearing the failings of the weak in the church at Rome. And so he's saying, hey, you want to bear these failings. And then as Paul's thinking about that, he thinks of how Christ did it, how Christ modeled it for us in Psalm 69. But then he thinks, you know what, there's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of, of God's that that God encourages us through the Old Testament. He's saying the Old Testament is a worthy place for the New Testament Christian to read, to find encouragement and endurance and hope. How so? When you read the pages of the Old Testament, you see that, that great redemptive plan of God. You see his faithfulness just um, revealed over and over how God makes promises, he keeps promises. He intervenes. He exercises mercy. He grants repentance. He grants forgiveness. You see the faithfulness of God through the scriptures, but you also see the grace of God in the men and women who have walked in the word of God. You you, you see Joseph. You see Nehemiah, a man of great faith. Joseph enduring. You see Moses in his humility. You see Abraham going by faith. 
I mean, you see all these examples in Paul's saying, look to Christ. But you know what? Look to the whole Old Testament. You can find encouragement to endure the failings of the weak. You can find encouragement by looking to the scriptures. So when you look at yourself and you consider your life in relationship to one another in this church, do you think that you're strong in bearing with the failings of the weak? And do you turn to Christ? And do you look at the cross? And do you look at the nature that he bore your sins? So, so when I'm confronted with the failings of the weak, oftentimes an air of superiority comes into my soul. Well, probably also emanates from it, frankly. But this superiority comes in, and I'm like, you know, you're confronted with that thought. What am I going to do here? Well, I'm driven to the cross. I'm driven to the gospel that reminds me of God's grace that Jesus bore my reproach. And Jesus bore my failings. And Jesus bore my weaknesses. And who am I to not want to bear with the weaknesses of anyone? This is a unique thing about Christianity. See, all other religions are rooted, your acceptance and your value from God is rooted in what you do. Christianity, it's not rooted that way. Do you realize that when you were saved, you were saved when you were wrong, when you were failing, and when you were weak? So he didn't give you a little bit of grace to get you running so that then you could start performing, and then he would accept you. He accepted you, for the Christian here, he accepted you when you were wrong. Jesus bore your failings and weakness. God demonstrates for us love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so if, if, if each one of us here, whoever claims the name of Christ, you had your failings accepted, taken, endured, and you were saved and accepted by God and adopted into his family. That's what happened with you, and you are now to mirror the gospel to those who are weak in your life by doing the same thing. This is, for me, I, I can't get over the fact that when I look at my own life and the darkness from which I've come and, and the fact that he didn't, how many of us tend to look at life much more performance? You know, they're going to do a little, then we give a little. And they do a little bit more and we give a little. But at the farthest point from God, he saved us. So that's the motivation that Paul is giving to us. The motivation is that when you struggle with accepting the weaknesses and the failings of those around you, just look at your own life. Look at your own salvation. Look at how God saved you. And that will both be a model, but I hope a motivation. So what happens when we do this? So biblical community is we embrace the differences. And I, I understand that's difficult and challenging. But the biblical community is fueled by the gospel. The gospel is central to that. So the differences that we have here. Third, and this is the result of the passage, look with me in 5, 6, and 7. It says, May the God of endurance and encourage, encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So look at this with me. It's really a prayer. Paul's giving a benediction. It's the benediction I'm going to give at the end of the service here. Paul's praying, but in his prayer, we see the result. So as you embrace differences, rooted in the gospel, <clears throat> so you're looking at people, they're different than you, you're going to open your lives up, you're going to get to know them, you're going to seek to influence them, you're even going to let them influence you. 
not to adopt their poor behaviors, perhaps, or their wrong behaviors, but you're going to let them influence you because God's gifted them. He saved them, and they have something valuable for you. And if you don't think so, then there'll never be a relationship there. But what he's saying is, when he's praying, he's saying, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In other words, as we embrace differences through the power of the gospel, then there's going to be a harmony. There's going to be a one accord. We're going to be of the same mind. Now, being of the same mind, that's what he's saying. This church will lurch forward incrementally in a greater unity. But saying that we have one mind doesn't mean that we think the same way about schooling or alcohol or movies or media. doesn't mean we have to think the same way about these things. Read Romans 12 through 14. Paul is reveling in the differences. There are all kinds of differences that are to exist in the church. He's not looking to eliminate differences. That's what the world does. We don't eliminate differences. We see the differences kind of coming together as this mosaic of God's glory. All together. No community is built around unity in the gospel. So our, our similarity, our unity, our one mind is not to be rooted in how we look or how we act. It's to be rooted in Christ. It says, in accord with Christ Jesus. So the gospel itself, the fact that every one of us here needs Christ in the same measure, that is the, that, that's the hub, if you will. That's the gravitational pull, or should be, of this church. That it just draws us together. In fact, Spurgeon said it beautifully. He said it this way. He said, we shall be like-minded with one another when we are like-minded with Christ, but not till then. Because any other unity built, it, it can be a common ethnicity, it can be common educational philosophy, a common fiscal policy, whatever it is, those will never last because they're all temporal. It's only the unity that we have in Christ. Do you see this? Because people will come to churches for various reasons. I like their music. Oh, they've got a good contingent of people that think the way I think on these issues. Or I like the size, or I like this. Now, I'm not saying those factors don't play a role in why we look at churches and, and how we view churches, but ultimately that can't be the draw to a body because we're going to fail each other. We're going to offend each other. We're going to change our opinions. We're going to change our views on things. We're going we're to slide one way or the other. And am I then not part of the group? But if it's centered in the gospel, that we all need Christ, that we all love him, then what happens is in verse 6, and, and there's a certain word there that, that is showing the result. In verse 6 it says, So that together with one voice you will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, apart from a unity in accord with Christ, we cannot really engage in authentic worship. The worship that God calls forth from his people is a worship that is birthed out of a mutual love for Jesus Christ. God has sent the Son to be glorified. And if we're not united around the Son, then what does that mean for the worship that we have? So this unity of purpose around Christ issues forth in true worship. And we're going to hit this more next week, but suffice it to say that our worship is denigrated as it's not hubbed around our common need for, our common love for, our common zeal for Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. This is really the great apologetic to the world. You know, we, we worry about evangelism programs and evangelism 
schemes and how we're going to market the church and all that. At the end of the day, here's what it is. I, I put all that to the side and say, you know what? If we have a great love for Christ and that gives birth to a great love for each other, that in itself is so otherworldly, it's so attractive, it's so joy-producing that that becomes the pull for people to say, what do you all have that, that I don't? But I love it and I want it. And you kind of see this in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you see the early church hit a bit of a snag, a conflict. And what happens is there's Grecian Jews, Jews that um, spoke uh, Greek, and there's Hebraic Jews, these Jews, these Jewish widows, I should say, that spoke Hebrew. And, and the, the Hebrew-speaking Jewish uh, widows were getting food served as the church began to grow. And these, these Greek-speaking Jewish widows weren't getting the same food. And so what happened was uh, the elders, the apostles got together and said, hey, we're going we're to appoint deacons. This is the first kind of the proto-deacon, if you will. They appointed deacons, seven deacons. They were Greek-speaking deacons, which was wise. And these Greek-speaking deacons uh, began to make sure that the distribution of food was done properly. Well, of course, what ensued was a unity in the church, right? A conflict came up. It was dealt with well. And boom, unity came. But what's interesting is what Luke writes after that, because he says, and many priests came to believe. Now, it's interesting that the priests who knew all these things of God didn't come to believe through the ministry of Christ. They came to believe after seeing the unity around the gospel meted out in the church. So when the church begins to act united, then people lose their ability to throw the gospel aside and say, it's just like another faith. Nah, you believe in the gospel, I believe in this, you believe in that, it doesn't matter. No, 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 it's altogether different here. Because look, we embrace differences. We don't seek to eliminate them. We don't force you to be like us. We embrace differences. We center it around the gospel. Leads to authentic worship, unity, and joy. And that is how God will declare his glory. Through us, how we love God's people. So think through the nature of your relationships. I would even say bust up. You know, we're all so busy and we're all busy doing, I'm sure, great things. But be intentional about what can be taken out of my schedule that allows me to engage with some degree of intentionality a person who is different than I am for the purposes of building them up, but also being built up by them. So let me pray for us. And we have a few minutes here. Um, let's open it up in prayer. Now, again, we ask because we're a group of this size, what we're doing here is we're really giving a response to God's word. We're, we're thinking of the church as a whole at this point when we pray. And I ask you to pray briefly. And the reason I always ask you that is just because there are other people, I think, that are tentative about praying. And, and, uh, and so it gives them room. And then um, uh, Jack's going to close us in prayer. Let me start. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, would you open our eyes to the profound need that we have for him and the profound work that he has done for us in bringing us together and let that well up with joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus.